we are engaged in a deep dive into the study of 2 Corinthians as a letter. The whole letter. Not just a text, not just a passage, but the whole letter. And it's a very sobering study because there is so much of it that is so applicable in our day. Paul is asserting his authority as a minister of the new covenant of the Spirit. But not just his authority, his relationship, his personal relationship to the church as an apostle. And he's asserting this because there are certain false apostles that have come into Corinth, a church that Paul established through his preaching, to people who had an initial conversion experience who are genuinely regenerate people. And he established this church only to have these men come in after Paul had gone on to other missionary efforts and begin to call into question Paul's credentials as an apostle and to present themselves as the true apostles. Now, Paul as we learn in this letter, was a minister of the new covenant of the Spirit. But these men, these false apostles, offered an alternative gospel. They they presented themselves as ministers of Christ, but with an alternative gospel of the letter, meaning rather than of the Spirit. And what we mean by that is a, a gospel of the letter in which they admitted that Christ was necessary. They presented themselves to the Corinthians as ministers of Christ, servants of Christ. They had very strong credentials. They were eloquent. They appeared by all worldly standards to be very successful. But they had an alternative gospel that was energized influenced by none other than Satan himself, who appears as an angel of light. We read that in the 11th chapter, so we'll get to that day later on in our study more in more detail. But I want to give you a setting here that we're dealing with. Paul is dealing with these super apostles, and he's dealing with, he's contending for the affection of the Corinthians against and over and against these super-apostles. All we have at stake in this letter is the gospel itself. And I say that with some sarcasm. What we have at stake in this letter and what Paul was at stake in his, in his efforts are the same thing that remain at stake for you and I today. Which gospel are we believing? And I said before in my last lesson, that genuine Christian living involves sharing abundantly in both Christ's sufferings and in his abounding comfort. I told you that we, if we are in Christ, that we as a community and individually are people in union with the hated and crucified one. And this means as we preach his gospel and as importantly, as we image his character into the world, the world will react in hatred towards us as it did him. 
But we also have this comfort that not only is our God the God of all comfort, and he will deliver us from such a deadly peril as we'll read in our text today, and therefore he is our hope and our comfort. But we also will learn a greater reliance upon him. So our sufferings are never without purpose, without uh, a paradigm, and without a positive outcome for us. However, the false apostles are always presenting the gospel, and their motive is to avoid persecution. They are peddlers of the word of God, it says in 2 Corinthians 2.17. They want to be popular. They don't want to be persecuted. And so Paul's opponents are presenting his persecutions, his sufferings, his afflictions as indicating that he is a false apostle. In other words, they're telling the Corinthians, these false apostles are telling the Corinthians, you can tell by Paul's sufferings that something's wrong with his gospel. Something's wrong with him, or he wouldn't be suffering like this. On the other hand, Paul is working to authenticate his ministry by making the Corinthians understand that suffering for Christ is simply part of the Christian life. It is simply part of the Christian ministry in the Spirit. Because we live in a fallen world that hates Christ, that is, um, have minds given over to the flesh. And so we must understand that we have this in front of us today as well. Now, what is very sobering, I've said this before, about this study is that most of what we call clergy or pastors or ministers today have far more in common with the super apostles of Paul's day than they do with Paul himself. Now, that should cause you to pause and ask yourself, am I one of those ministers? Or am I aligned with Paul? We're going to come out of this study with great clarity, my friends, as to who we are aligned with. We're going to come out of this study with a great increase in discernment as to what modern super apostles look like. Well, let's turn to our text. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-11. through 11. Reading, quote, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by our prayers, by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted to us in answer to the prayers of many. End quote. 
Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired and inerrant word. Amen. Well, Paul is addressing his readers here as brothers and sisters. This is an intra-family discussion. Paul is not preaching to unbelievers. He's not addressing unbelievers. He is addressing the family, his family, the church family, a family that was established through his preaching. Uh, Paul's preaching was along with Silas and Timothy. And having established that God provides abundant comfort for those sharing in the sufferings of Christ, Paul now tells them, in this family discussion, that he doesn't want them to be uninformed of the severity of the troubles he experienced during his missionary journey in the province of Asia. He and his associates were, in fact, pressed to the point that they despaired of life itself. Now, remember, the false apostles were using Paul's persecutions and troubles as an indicator that he was a false apostle, that Paul had a false gospel. He wouldn't be suffering, in other words, if he wasn't uh, something wrong with him. But Paul's saying, far be it, far be it, far from it. I am, in fact, suffering because I'm an authentic apostle. So Paul despaired of life itself. They had felt that they had received the sentence of death. So Paul is making it clear that such suffering actually authenticates the Christian life and ministry. Suffering is simply part of the ministry in the Spirit under the New Covenant. And this suffering not only serves as a positive credential, Paul realizes also that his affliction has this added benefit and that it results in and him learning greater reliance upon the God who raises the dead. Now, I realize part of the challenge in this study for you and I is that this kind of language and this kind of lifestyle as a Christian is, uh, let alone an apostle, is very, um, very foreign to us. Most preachers in the West today are preaching a people-pleasing gospel that promises uh, victory and happiness, prosperity. There, there's no mention of, of suffering in the American gospel. It just isn't a popular approach. But Paul is saying quite on the contrary. Suffering is a part of my credential. It authenticates my ministry. And so he wants them to understand the severity of it. In other words, the severity of his suffering only goes to prove the authenticity and the depth of that authenticity of his calling in his ministry as an apostle of Christ. Now, when I say self-reliance, Paul's not speaking here of a healthy level of self-efficacy. Every human being should have some self-efficacy. We should raise our children to exercise healthy self-care, healthy self-reliance. So Paul is not speaking of a natural self-reliance. Rather, he's speaking of a self-reliance that is uh, an approach to ministry. 
and approach to ministry that claims to be doing it for God, but actually is relying upon man's wisdom and schemes as the center of their motivation and their and their uh, work, as opposed to the power of God. So self-reliance, the self-reliance that Paul is speaking of here, has no place in the service of God and in our salvation, particularly in our salvation. The ministry of the Spirit and God's work and salvation must be done in His way and in His power. So Paul wants his readers to have a proper understanding of his sufferings. And that is what we need to work as well to glean here. A proper understanding of Paul's sufferings so that we can understand too that in our union with the hated and crucified one, as we image his character into the world, that we too will experience that level to some degree or another, lesser to greater, of suffering. And if it becomes severe, we can rejoice in the fact that the severity, even of that suffering, will only lead us to a greater depth of reliance upon the God who raises the dead. <laughs> Let me just say it again. This is not a popular message. This is not something you're probably going to hear much about from the pulpits on Sunday mornings across the land. But it is the word of our text, and it is the word of the New Testament. The Lord Jesus himself affirmed that persecutions authenticate true discipleship, as well as membership in God's household. Let me just give you one example. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. Paul says, excuse me, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for, for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and listen to this now, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. End quote. Jesus is saying you may have to suffer the loss of home, of family, of mother, of brothers, or sisters, or father, or fields, and lands, or careers, or and for me and the gospel. But you're leaving behind something in favor of something. You will gain homes and brothers and sisters and a sense of belonging along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying here clearly that the loss of family and family traditions and even career traditions, things that stand opposed to the gospel and those who stand opposed to the gospel, the loss of those people will re only result in the fact that you will gain a whole new set of people who also you are part of the family of God. You will have a new brothers, new sisters, new mothers, and new places to exercise your vocation, along with persecutions. Persecutions defined 
the ministry of Jesus and his followers. It defined the ministry of the apostles, and it has defined the work of the prophets under the old covenant and the work of the saints and pastors and preachers and uh, throughout uh, church history as well. There's no way to get around it. But what we can do is we can develop this, this new paradigm for suffering. We can, we can expect the comfort of God himself in our suffering. We can expect that we'll have a greater assurance that we are indeed in Christ as we display his character and that character is reacted to by the world. But nonetheless, it is Christ in us that the world is reacting to. And we learn this greater reliance upon God himself. So, So false suffering represents a continuance of the long-standing tradition of persecution among the prophets and the saints and that of the Lord Jesus himself. For instance, Psalm 34 tells us that the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Now, that's a promise to the righteous, but it's also a prophecy of Christ's own suffering, as you recall. Not one of his bones was broken. So, we are going to follow the hated and crucified one. We are going to experience both persecutions and sufferings and affliction to some degree or another. Whether it's even just people misunderstanding us people avoiding us, family members, rejecting us. How many people stay within a dead religious tradition in order to stay connected to family? How many people stay within a ministry or a tradition that actually opposes Christ in its application in order to stay connected to family? Listen, at some point, part of the point of our text and part of the point of our study, at some point, we have to place Christ first, period. End of story. And then let the chips fall where they may, knowing that God will be our comfort, knowing that we will be authenticated in our discipleship and in our fellowship with Christ and our union with Christ, and we will move more effectively from self-reliance to God-reliance. So, the essential point here is that Paul and his associates are ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit. And they suffer because the world and those of the flesh, while very religious, nonetheless stand in opposition to the work of, the, of Christ in the Spirit. So, let me ask you, let me ask you, are you clear as to what realm you belong? Are you in the flesh or are you in the Spirit? Romans 8 tells us that you're in everyone breathing, everyone has ever lived, everyone is alive now, and everyone who will ever live, is either in the flesh or of the Spirit. If you're in the Spirit, it means you are in Christ. You have been regenerate. You are, you are in union with Christ. And every person in, in the sound of my voice is either in the flesh or in the Spirit. You, you are in one realm or the other. You don't move back and forth between them. 
The other question is, do you share then in Christ's sufferings and yet know his abounding comfort? Is that defining of your life? Or are you aligned with those who seek to please the world by adopting a gospel message that accommodates the fleshly, religious impulse to self-salvation? Now, Paul tells us he doesn't want us to be unfamiliar with his sufferings throughout Asia Minor. So let's just take a brief moment now and consider his sufferings. Just look at a few passages from the book of Acts. In fact, even a cursory reading of the book of Acts reveals Paul's afflictions as he faithfully preached throughout Asia Minor. For instance, in Acts chapter 13, Jewish leaders heaped abuse on Paul and Barnabas for their preaching. Acts 13, 42 through 47. And chapter 14, the very next chapter, both Jews and Greeks conspired to mistreat and stone Paul and Barnabas. In chapter 16 of Acts, Verses 23 through 24, Paul and Silas are stripped and beaten with rods and then put in stocks. Uh, we just don't know this kind of persecution in this country. And I'm not saying we should, we should want to. I'm just saying we don't know. But if it happens, are we prepared? Are we prepared to have a proper understanding and paradigm for suffering for Christ? And if we're not, we're going to think, just like the false apostles are telling the Corinthians, that something's wrong, that we've done something wrong, that maybe we've got the gospel wrong, maybe we're believing the wrong thing. When in fact, that kind of suffering authenticates our discipleship and leads us from greater self-reliance to God-reliance. That's the point here. In Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas were accused of causing trouble all over the world. In Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the elders in Ephesus that uh, he's compelled, in verse 22, and now compelled by the Spirit, see, Paul's a minister of the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Now, what would Paul do in a modern context? If the Holy Spirit spoke to most pastors today and said, all that's awaiting you is prison and hardships, the temptation would be to say, well, then I better change my style and content of my preaching. If all that awaits me is prisons and hardships, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Listen, most pastors today come out of seminary with a real desire for success, but not success as defined by Jesus. Success as defined by the world. And prisons and hardships are not something that they are looking forward to. They're looking forward to a nice, peaceful career as a clergy person. Where people greet them at the back door after the service, shake their hand and applaud them for a nice sermon, for a nice homily. So Paul tells, us, tells the Ephesian elders, No, I, I'm aware that I'm on the way to Jerusalem. I'm compelled by the Spirit to go where I go. And the Holy Spirit's warning me that prison and hardships are facing me. 
And then in verse 24, Paul says this, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. End quote. There's our paradigm for life and for ministry. Now let me close with just a brief reference to Paul's understanding that to move from self-reliance, both in ministry and our understanding of the gospel, to God-reliance does not mean that we are acting in some kind of isolated fashion. Paul had companions, in this case, Timothy and, and um, Silas, and other associates. But he tells the church in our text, as, um, let me see here, on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, verse 11, he, God, we set in our hope on God, that he will continue to deliver us, and then verse 11, as you, the church, help us by your prayers. So moving from self-reliance to God-reliance is a work of grace experienced not only individually, but as a community. And self-reliance does not equate to isolation, does not equate to, well, I don't need anybody. Quite on the contrary. We experience God-reliance within community, the family of God. And one of the reasons we're able to exercise God-reliance is because we are surrounded by a church family, brothers and sisters, who are praying for us, who are contending for us, interceding for us, and we for them. So to be God-reliant is not to be some kind of a lone ranger out there by ourselves, claiming to not need anyone. That's not the kind of healthy God-reliance that we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a God-reliance that recognizes that I'm not at the center of my own Christian life. Christ is. I'm not at the center of my ministry. The Spirit is. And I am not at the center of my life. God is. He is my comfort. And that comes to me through community. It comes to me as we experience it within community. So this is uh, quite a paradigm shift for us all. As Americans especially, we have a very rugged individualism that if we're not careful, we bring into our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of our relationship to the church. So God-reliance is something we all experience together as a community in fellowship with one another. Well, we'll end it there. We'll put a comma there. Next time we're together, we'll talk about Paul's behavior, his character, which was, of course, Christ's character through him within the community, and how reliance, again, upon worldly wisdom is a way of the false apostles. 
within community where Paul's reliance and his integrity and his godly sincerity was a manifestation of the grace of God in his life. Think of that. Paul is saying in our next lesson we'll examine the power and the transformative nature of God's grace so that in our relationships with one another it produces integrity and godly sincerity. Well, may the Lord continue to strengthen you. May the Lord continue to comfort you. May your hope be in Him, in Him alone. Amen.